Good morning. In Super Bowl 51, saw the New England Patriots deliver one of the greatest sports comebacks. I, I got this idea going about looking at sports comebacks. And uh, there's all kinds of amazing stories, but this is one that gets listed multiple times. And it was actually one of the first ones that, that, that I had thought of. The, the, the New England Patriots overcame a 25-point deficit to triumph in overtime against the Atlanta Falcons. It, the performance by their quarterback, Tom Brady, already an all-time great, helped solidify his place in NFL history. Previously, the most a team had overcome was a 10-point deficit. We're going to go from the Super Bowl to a Roman poet before the time of Christ named Horace. Adversity has the effect of eliciting talents which in prosperous circumstances would have lain dormant. I'm going to read that again. Adversity has the effect of eliciting talents which in prosperous circumstances would have lain dormant. Now, we won't say that Tom Brady's talents would have lain dormant, but you definitely had an opportunity, a stage to see those talents in the midst of that adversity of that 25-point deficit. It's true of athletes, scientists, military generals. Adversity is a stage of greatness. Whose greatness is revealed when you face adversity? Whose greatness is revealed when you face adversity? This morning we're going to see that you have an opportunity to reveal the greatness of Christ when you face adversity. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Philippians 4. I'm going to read from verses 10 through 20. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray this morning. Uh, Father, we thank you. Uh, once again, for uh, preserving your word uh, for us. And here we have this uh, prolonged uh, thank you note from the Apostle Paul to the church in Philippi. But we thank you, Lord, that you have preserved it really for more than for us to learn how to say thank you. But to think about giving and generosity, but specifically this morning about the resources we have for contentment in Christ Jesus. Lord, I pray that uh, you would be convicting us as we look at what your word says about contentment. It is a difficult a topic, really, in a world where uh, so many of us have virtually everything we could wish for, at least every physical thing. Um, Lord, that's true of many of us. Uh, yet, Lord, we um, struggle with wanting the newest and the best. Uh, Lord, Father, it is humbling uh, to look at your word, particularly as we see uh, Paul talking about need and hunger. And uh, we pray, Father, that you would uh, uh, really be helping us to think about the adversity, the circumstances that we face. And may your son be exalted this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. In verse 10, the Apostle Paul, as he writes to, to the church in Philippi, which is in the northeast corner of ancient Greece, the Apostle Paul, God's messenger, turns his attention to one last subject. It's his final re reason for writing this church in Philippi. 
See, the Philippians has sent Epaphroditus to help Paul, but they had also sent Epaphroditus carrying an important financial gift for Paul. They wanted to minister to him while he was in prison. The Philippians had always been, or as much as they could have been, been generous supporters since Paul had founded the church in Philippi. We just read in Philippians 4, 15, and 16, where it says, At the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, that's the area there where Philippi was, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. You, church in Philippi, were special to me. You partnered with me in, in, in giving and supporting me. And then in verse 16, For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Thessalonica is the city that Paul went to after Philippi. And while in Philippi, he received multiple gifts. And it looks like he may not have even been there for a long time. The Philippians understood, we've got to help Paul carry on proclaiming this good news after we've received it. In 2 Corinthians 8, uh, the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth about the church in Philippi. He describes in verses 2 through 4, and really Paul is encouraging the Corinthians to be generous. He, did, he talks about the church in Philippi, the churches in Macedonia, to the Corinthians. He describes that in a great deal, in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of their saints." describes the church in Philippi as being one that was in deep poverty. This is 2 Corinthians 8, verses 2 through 4. In deep poverty, they were begging Paul, please take our money. We want to participate in your efforts. The, the Philippians were an impoverished church that excelled in generosity. Now, as Paul acknowledges their gift, there was potential for awkwardness in this situation. And if you've received a financial gift in your time of need, maybe you felt some of the same of that. Especially if you were given a gift by someone that you knew didn't have a ton of money. How could Paul express sincere appreciation to the church in Philippi without being interpreted as either asking for more or at the same time as not trusting the Lord? How could he do both of those? And, and, and I don't know if you've experienced this, talking about money, particularly giving and receiving, can definitely be awkward. And we see, I won't say that we see Paul awkward here, he's just very cautious. He's very careful as he chooses his words well. Paul wanted to express sincere appreciation, but he also wanted to be an example to them in their need. And it does seem that the uh, Philippians were experiencing need, as we saw in verse 19, how he encourages them that God would supply all your needs according to his riches in, in glory in Christ Jesus. Now, adding to the fact that the Apostle Paul needed tact, as we do when we talk about money and giving and talking about needs, there had been a pause in the Philippians' giving. It says in verse 10 in the beginning, he says, but I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me, right? And probably some of you felt your hackles rise a little bit. Like, ooh, that's kind of harsh, Paul. Now at last you have revived your concern for me? Kind of like I've been waiting at my clock. Like, when was the next gift going to come? And of course, uh, uh, Paul didn't mean that. And, 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 and all the commentators agree that this sounds much worse in English. There's no rebuke here on the part of Paul. He's only addressing the obvious, and they would have wanted it addressed. It had been a long time since the last gift had, had been given. Verse 11 uh, says, and I say verse 11, but I think that that's a lot. Okay, at, at the end of verse 10, it says, Indeed, you were concerned, but you lacked opportunity. And we don't know why the Philippians lacked opportunity to give to Paul. Uh, the ancient world was crazy. You couldn't just check on Facebook and see where someone was. Maybe they had lost track of Paul and they didn't know where he was. They couldn't get the money to him. Or maybe there was no messenger like Epaphroditus to be entrusted with bringing the money across Greece 
into Rome. I mean, like, that was a dangerous journey. We talked about this, perhaps a 50-day journey. Maybe the Philippians didn't have enough money to send. They would have had to maybe have collected and saved for a while to make it worth someone taking that long trip. Or it's possible, too, as, as, as historians speculate, that maybe the Apostle Paul had asked the church in Philippi, and maybe all the churches who wanted it to support him, please don't, because I'm getting misinterpreted as wanting to do this for, for financial gain. And we knew that there was times where Paul, where Paul, Paul refused to take money because he was getting really accused of false motives in his proclamation in Christ. So we don't know why there had been this at last, but now the opportunity was back, and the Philippians show that their heart hasn't changed, that they are eager to give once again. In verse 10 in the beginning, Paul says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. And, and, and we're not even to our three bullet points yet. So if you're a note taker, we're going to get there in just a minute. So I want to give some of the background here. In verse 10, Paul says, but I rejoice in the Lord greatly. It's interesting what Paul says. Paul rejoices not in the gift, but in the Lord. That doesn't mean he wasn't thankful. He just didn't get overly responsive to this financial gift. He, he takes the opportunity to rejoice in the Lord instead, to the Lord who is working generosity in the heart of his people. The gift was a prompt to praise, a reminder really of all that Paul had in Christ Jesus. And he rejoices in the Lord. This is, this is but, but a, 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 a smidgen, but a drop in the ocean of all the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So he rejoices in the Lord. Now, even as Paul rejoices, he's concerned that he might be misinterpreted. Let's go back to verse 11. Really, I'm just going to read through 10 to 11 again. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have, you, you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want. Paul sharing his rejoicing, the reason why he was rejoicing, was not out of a want. It wasn't out of a need, and that word could be translated as poverty. I'm, I'm not speaking about this. I'm not telling you I was rejoicing because I have a need. It's not because I'm impoverished. But this is important. That doesn't mean that Paul didn't have needs. And it didn't mean that he wasn't impoverished. He's just talking about the motivation that he spoke from. His motive for telling them that he rejoiced in the Lord. And when we, uh, uh, next time we're in, we're in Philippians 4, and uh, it will be a while as I'm going to be turning some attention to getting ready uh, for the Southeast Asia trip. Um, but the next time we're going to talk more about principles of giving from this section. That was a detour. Okay, so we're going to f uh, focus more about giving in, in general. Paul's not addressing his needs, but only his motive in writing. So it doesn't mean when he says, not that I speak from want, that he didn't have needs or that he wasn't truly impoverished. Uh, and from looking at the end of the Acts and reading this letter, it was clear that he was in prison. It was clear that he was under arrest. The end of Acts... Uh, looks like that he was in his own rented place that he was responsible to uh, pay for. So there's a lot that we don't know about the ancient prison world, uh, but he was painted. So, so here he is, unable to work as a tent maker, impoverished, and in need. But he says, that's not why I'm writing you. So why is he writing? Well, this morning we're going to look at three aspects of contentment so that you will display the greatness of Jesus when you face difficult circumstances. I'll say it again. Then we're going to look at three aspects of contentment, so that you will display the greatness of Jesus when you face difficult circumstances. Three aspects of contentment, so that you will display the greatness of Jesus when you face difficult circumstances. The, and I mentioned this, the Philippians were still likely facing financial difficulties themselves. They were probably still, as they had been in the past, in great poverty. Perhaps finances had been part of the reason for their anxiety. Remember just a few verses prior in Philippians 4, 6, Paul told them, be anxious for nothing. They had all kinds of difficult circumstances that they were going through. They were facing opposition for advancing the gospel. They were struggling with unity. Their beloved church founder, the Apostle Paul, was in prison. You add to that that they were probably still facing financial need. 
all of that adversity that the church in Philippi faced was God-ordained opportunity for them to reveal the greatness of Christ. And that is true about the adversity that you face in your life. The adversity that you face in your life is a God-ordained opportunity for you to reveal the greatness of Jesus Christ. Let's begin at looking at the nature of contentment in verse 11. The nature of contentment first. Paul explains why he doesn't speak from want in, in verse 11. He says, not that I speak from, from want. I'm not writing for more money. He says, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. The, uh, if uh, you have a New American Standard Bible, you'll notice a little number there telling you that that word content can be translated a different way. And if you follow that number down to one of your footnotes, you'll see that it can also be translated as self-sufficient. And you can see why the translators kind of move away from that word, right? Like self-sufficient doesn't sound like a good thing, right? Uh, but self-sufficient shows some of the interesting nature of this word. It comes from two Greek words. One is self, and the other is more often translated as content. So self-content or self-adequate or self enough. In myself, I've got enough. I have what I need. Greek culture praised self-sufficiency. One uh, commentator, and I'm going to quote him a, 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 a few times. This is P.T. O'Brien says, the cultivated attitude of the wise person. So this is what, what they view this self-sufficiency is. This cultivated attitude of the wise person who'd become independent of all things and all people, relying on himself because of his innate resources, because he's just got it all together, or on the lot given to him by the gods. So whether by circumstances, by luck, by his natural aptitude, someone who could just manage life well, who was independent. Another commentator describes it as independent of external circumstances. So someone who's not tossed back and forth by the situations that he goes through. Now, self-sufficiency was especially uh, valued by the Stoic philosophers. So if you've studied uh, philosophy, I know all of us did at one point to some degree in school, and maybe remember the Stoics. The Stoics taught, and this is again quote, quote, quoting P.T. O'Brien, that man should be sufficient unto himself for all things and able by the power of his own will to resist the force of circumstances, to be untouchable by circumstances. And, and, and you, you still hear that sometimes when someone says that they are being stoic, like they're going through all this adversity, but they're just like a rock, right? They're not touched by any of it. They're, they're self-sufficient. They're unchanged. Now, it's unknown whether Paul was, was using this phrase self, self-sufficiency or contentment, whether he had the Stoic philosophers in mind at all. The word just had more of a general sense that wasn't really applying to them. But either way, Paul's understanding of self-sufficiency is different from the understanding of his culture. See, Paul's contentment did not come from his own resources. But it's still really interesting that he uses this word, and he, and he could have just said, I'm content. But he instead he said, I'm self-content. I'm self-sufficient. So what does contentment mean? And it's been a lot of fun meditating on this and thinking about this and even reading through Philippians. And I'm going to begin by talking about what contentment doesn't mean. Because I think it's, it, it's easy to kind of like make a stereotype of. Contentment doesn't mean, or, or, or that kind of uh, self-sufficiency doesn't mean that someone is emotionally disengaged. Okay? It doesn't mean that you're emotionally disengaged. And we see that Paul's emotions, the, the, this, this letter to Philippians is full of Paul's emotions. He talks in verse 4 of chapter 1, always offering prayer with joy. In verse 118, describes rejoicing that Christ is proclaimed. Chapter 2, verse 2, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. Rejoice in the Lord always. In verse, chapter 3, verse 1, again in 4, 4. So contentment, this self-sufficiency, this, this, this having it together in a sense, does not mean you're emotionally disengaged. It doesn't mean that, in, in, in that same way, that you don't experience sorrow. 
talks about being thankful that God saved the life of Epaphroditus in 227, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. In chapter 3, verse 18, he says, Now I tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. So being content doesn't mean you're emotionally disengaged. It also doesn't mean that you are unable to recognize suffering. And I think that sometimes uh, people get into such a mental place where they have such a view of God's sovereignty that they are unable to call suffering suffering. Paul doesn't do that. Paul understands when you go through bad things, they're bad things. The Stoics wouldn't have in uh, chapter 1, verse 29. It has been granted to suffer for his sake. Contentment is not incompatible with recognizing that you are going through suffering, whether financial suffering, physical suffering, emotional suffering. You're not more spiritual if you don't recognize that you're suffering. Contentment also doesn't mean the absence of desire. Now, that's really interesting, right? Contentment doesn't mean the absence of desire. Automatically, if you were saying, what does content mean? You probably think, well, I'm satisfied, right? Like, I just had a huge meal. I'm content now. I'm satisfied. Have you seen my house? I've got plenty. I'm content, satisfied. Contentment doesn't mean the absence of desire. I wasn't boasting about my house. I was just talking an example. I also didn't have a huge meal. So, okay. Contentment doesn't mean the absence of desire. In chapter 1, verses 7 to 8, Paul says, How I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul was content but longing. In chapter 4, verse 1, My beloved brethren whom I long to see. He had desires. Chapter 1, verse 23, describes Paul's desire to be with Christ, having the desire to depart and be with Christ. Epaphroditus was described as longing for you all. Chapter 3, verse 20 Paul says, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior. He longed to be with Jesus Christ. So content doesn't mean that we don't have strong desires for our brothers and sisters in Christ to be with the Lord Jesus Christ. We can be content and yearning. Contentment also doesn't mean not having needs. Paul describes how Epaphroditus was a minister to my needs. So you can be content and have needs. That's why it's important that Paul doesn't say he didn't have want or need or poverty. You can be content and still have needs. In fact, and we've already quoted from Philippians 4.19, how he promises that God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Contentment also isn't passivity in regard to sanctification. I don't think that many people would get confused about this, but it's important. Right? You can be content and striving. And we saw that in, in the, with the Apostle Paul, Philippians 3.12. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. You can be yearning and striving and still be content. So let me summarize a little bit of what I'm describing there. Contentment doesn't mean denying that you are a physical, emotional person. That you are a complex union of body and soul. That you have strong desires and needs. You can be content to be all those things. It's not pretending you are a mannequin. Right? Because sometimes I think that that's how Paul's imagined. But that does not match up with Scripture. And that's not what it means for us to be content. It doesn't mean to just have a stern look and say, I'm fine. Couldn't be happier as my life falls apart. Pretending does not show the greatness of Christ. It just shows that you're a great actor. Pretending doesn't show the greatness of Christ. It shows that you're a great actor. So what does contentment mean? We spent a lot of time talking about what it doesn't mean. And that was just from the book of Philippians, where really we see Paul as an emotional man. Okay, so what does contentment mean? And as you look at various dictionaries, they, they, they kind of uh, circle around this idea of satisfaction and happiness, regardless of your circumstances. Now, a lot of times, you, you can be satisfied and happy because of your circumstances. But when you push a little bit further... And uh, you, you, you can have a contentment, satisfaction, happiness that's, that is regardless of your circumstances. 
And I think that that's good. But I think you can push further than that because the Apostle Paul does. So what does it mean that, that you can be satisfied and happy as you're longing for someone's presence, as you're yearning to be with the Lord Jesus Christ, as you're weeping and as you're sorrowing, as you're bringing your request to God as you're praying, right? Like that doesn't really match up with what we think of as just kind of satisfied and happy. I'm content because, again, because of Thanksgiving dinner, right? I'm, I'm satisfied. So I think we, we know, I know we have to push further in our understanding of what contentment is. So I've got some descriptions here, and I can't get rid of one of them. So instead of having a really nice, tight definition for you, I've got some descriptions of what contentment is, because the more I'm all over it, I think that they're all essential to Paul's understanding of contentment. So this is all in our first point of the nature of contentment. One is, contentment requires us to view our circumstances through a gospel lens. It requires us to view our circumstances through the lens of the gospel. In such a, a sweet verse like Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. If we are going to be content, if we're going to have this kind of satisfaction, this kind of, of self-sufficiency that Paul's describing here, Again, I'm going to use that word very cautiously in its most literal way. Um, It's not forgetting God's generosity to you in Christ Jesus. It's not forgetting God's goodness to you. It's realizing that God's goodness to you in Christ Jesus is unrestrained. He, 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 He doesn't put a valve on it so that you just get a drip of his goodness. Right? His His grace is wide open to you in Christ Jesus. If you are in him, he couldn't have more goodness for you. You need to bring that perspective when you are pursuing biblical contentment. So one, it's viewing your circumstances through a gospel lens, through through the lens of God's grace. Now let's look at number two. It's viewing your circumstances as opportunities for obedience orchestrated by God. It's viewing your circumstances, the, 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 the difficulties you're going through, as opportunities for obedience that have been orchestrated by God. Jesus Christ is Lord of this day. Right? We are not in some corner of the universe where things have wildly gone out of his control. He is sovereign over all the details, including all the adverse circumstances that you are going through. Our Lord is wise. He is able to accomplish his best plan for you in the best possible way. He will never need to revert to his plan B. He doesn't, he doesn't, he's never thought of a backup plan. See, contentment is the freedom fueled by faith to obey God in your current circumstances. Your circumstances do not make you sin. So so contentment is looking at our circumstances, remembering God's grace to us in Christ Jesus. It is looking at them as as opportunities that God has orchestrated for our obedience. It's also responding to your circumstances with submission rather than rebellion. With submission rather than rebellion. Coming to him and saying, Lord, what do you require of me in the physical pain that I'm suffering? What do you require of me in my problems raising children? What do you require of me in my financial straits? What do you require of me, Lord? How can I obey you? Instead of shaking your fist at him and saying, God, get me out of this. It doesn't mean, and we're talking about that, you can't bring your your request to God. But it's submitting rather than rebelling. It's responding to your circumstances with thankfulness rather than grumbling. And it's interesting, as we get to this point in the letter, we're reminded of Philippians 2.14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Perhaps Paul had that in mind, too, as he thought about their financial circumstances. And they, they were going through a lot of difficulties. If we're going to be content, 
we need to respond with submission. We need to respond with thankfulness. Really remembering the innumerable blessings we have in Christ Jesus. I mean, spending a few minutes being thankful for all of them. That is going to be the seed of our contentment, our submission, and our thankfulness. It's also responding to your circumstances with dependence rather than independence. And this is where that Greek idea of self-sufficiency falls apart. Contentment is not a transformation into you becoming a robot where you don't have needs or, 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 or where everything just kind of bounces off of you. That's not contentment. Contentment is not self-sufficient, but God-sufficient. It's realizing that you are out of the that you are out of your own resources. All of these are integral to that idea of contentment, that humble, thankful, dependent viewing of your circumstances through the good news of Jesus Christ, knowing that they've been orchestrated by God for you to bring glory to his son. And last here, responding with a balanced biblical evaluation of our physical circumstances. And I was really impacted by this and really convicted by this. Responding with a balanced biblical evaluation of our physical circumstances. So what do I mean there? When you read through Philippians, written by Paul, chained perhaps right then, and it seems nonstop, to an imperial guard, as you read through Philippians, it will realign what you rejoice in. It will realign what you rejoice in. People over possessions. Gospel progress over good food. The greatness of Christ more than great feelings. And sanctification over serenity. As you read through Philippians, you do see a hotly emotional man with weeping and rejoicing. But you see the content of what he's rejoicing in. And it is, and it is God's grace to us in his son. It is seeing the saints growing. And he's, and he's weeping over false teachers. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be thankful. And that we, couldn't, we can't take joy in a nice slice of pizza. Or whatever it is you take joy in. But... We need to have a biblical evaluation of our physical circumstances. We, we have so many richer and deeper things to be rejoicing in. And I'm convicted in my own heart from uh, thinking about 1 John 2, 15 and 17. Is John before or after Peter? Okay. 1 John 2, 15 to 17. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also it's lust. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. And there's biblical balance here. God gives good gifts that we can enjoy and receive with thanksgiving. But to what extent do you rejoice over those, 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 those small gifts? Versus rejoicing over the eternal gifts. To how much joy do you take in a bite of food or a bright sunny day? Versus the, 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 the eternal blessings we have in Christ Jesus. And I think that that is going to be part of our contentedness. Is, is, is to say, what am I spending my time rejoicing in? If you have such highs and lows based on your appetite. Or based on what you see. Or, or can you get the, the 4K television? Or is it time finally to upgrade from a DVD to a Blu-ray, which I know we're all way past that, right? But, but, but if that brings so much joy, is that loving the things of the world? I can't answer that for you. But remember, the rich young ruler refused to, leave Jesus, refused to follow Jesus Christ because of his possessions. And we live in a world that just promises more and more stimulation of our senses and better and better and faster and faster and smoother in every, just constantly better. If you're, I mean, our contentment can't be, we have to have the biblical evaluation of those kinds of things. They are small joys. 
yet I've been discontent over not having the best. It's, it's, it's really disgusting when I think of, and it's sad to my heart. I need to keep repenting of that. So those are some of what biblical contentment requires, and maybe another week or another two weeks I could come up with a really good, tight definition. But I see all of these working in the Apostle Paul, viewing his circumstances through a gospel lens, viewing the opportunities, the difficulties he was facing, the disadvantages, the hardships, the adversity as obedience, as opportunities for obedience orchestrated by God. Responding with submission rather than rebellion, thankfulness instead of grumbling, dependence instead of independence, and and putting those things in the right perspective. Paul says, in whatever circumstances I am, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. And there's no limitation to the circumstances he's speaking of here. We're going to see in, in context that it's ultimately, it is, it is primarily financial and physical. But I think when Paul says, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am, he's not only talking about food. He's talking about, uh, about all those circumstances. Now the verb tense here where he says, I have learned, is encouraging to us. See, contentment is a matter of sanctification. And you can learn to be content. If you are in Christ Jesus, you can learn to be content. You can learn to have a different view of the adversity that you face, of the difficulties that you go through, the circumstances that can sometimes throw your day into a tizzy over the smallest thing. You can grow. That's the nature of contentment. Now let's look at the extent of contentment in verse 12. The extent of contentment in verse 12. In the beginning of the verse, Paul says, I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in, in prosperity. And here we see that Paul's focus primarily is our, our, our physical condition, our financials, at least in this verse here. To, to, to get along with humble means, the ESV says, to be brought low, to be humbled by not having enough. Or how to bound, how to live in prosperity. In the middle of the verse it says, In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret. Now, learn the secret, that word secret there, uh, it was a technical term in, in a sense. It was used in a precise way for the ritual of someone being initiated into a pagan cult. In which only those who go through this this this, this kind of jumps through all these hoops. It goes through this ritualistic process, arrives at this secret knowledge. So Paul says, I've gone through that process. I've gotten the secret. Now, of course, Paul uses it ironically, right? Because he didn't go through, there were no sacrifices to, to arrive at the secret. He didn't have to do any mystical acts. But he says, I've learned the secret. He's wetting our appetite. He's going to tell us what that secret is in, in just a minute. He says, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry. He's learned this, the secret in any and every circumstance. Of being filled and, being, and, and going hungry. Of being filled was a word used to, to fatten up an animal before it was killed. He says, I've had plenty. I've had more than enough, but I've also gone hungry. We see that in 1 Corinthians 4.11, Paul describes. He says, to this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty. And he was probably writing that from, from Ephesus. To this present hour, we are both hungry and not in prison, hungry and thirsty, and are poorly clothed, and are roughly treated, and are homeless. And 2 Corinthians eleven twenty seven, he describes it again. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. The apostle Paul experienced poverty. He had hunger aches, and he had learned to be content. Now, Paul is yet to explain the source of his contentment or what he learned about his contentment. But we must ask ourselves, why does Paul emphasize this range of experiences? He could have just said, I've learned to be content. I've learned to be content in all kinds of circumstances. Why does he flesh this out? And it could be because that the Philippians were going through it. But I think that there's application for us. As someone who has been there, he is proof of your ability to learn contentment. Paul was not in a posh palace talking down to his 
subordinates who are going through, the common citizens who are going through hard times. Paul had been there. His adversity was because of his commitment to Christ. He could have probably stayed a, a, a happy Pharisee with more than enough. But he didn't. He gave that up because of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, so we can be encouraged by the extent, by the extremes that he had gone through. He is speaking from experiences. We're going to see we have the same resources that he had. But there's another lesson here. Contentment is learned as we go through difficulty. Contentment is learned as we go through difficulty. Paul had learned, learned contentment in the same kinds of financial difficulties that the Philippians were going through. Adversity is God's school for contentment, not ease. Do you desire to learn contentment? Do you see its value, its beauty? Much of our lives are spent avoiding humbling circumstances. Now, I know we need to be good stewards. We need to be good stewards of our body, but we exercise ultimately to avoid sickness. Well, that's the only reason that I would, hypothetically. We save to avoid borrowing. We strive for promotion to prolong comfort. We, we, we really want to avoid humbling that we know is going to come sometime as long as possible. But is your fear of humbling circumstances, of potential need, getting in the way of your present obedience? Is your fear of not having enough getting in the way of your present obedience? Are you postponing obedience to God's commands? Because really, because you're afraid of needing to learn contentment. That may be postponing obedience in giving. That may be postponing obedience in using your gifts to serve the body because of the time that it takes. Maybe it's postponing obedience to fulfill your biblical roles, whether in the church or in your homes. Are you postponing obedience so that you can achieve a certain level of comfort now, of success now, of independence now? Are you afraid to learn contentment or avoiding a situation in which your children could learn contentment? Are you intentionally avoiding something that would teach you contentment? Again, I'm not saying don't be a good steward of the gifts and resources that God has given you. But I am saying don't postpone obedience in pursuit of the American dream. Don't postpone obedience in the pursuit of the American dream. The greatness of Christ must be seen on the stage of economic adversity. And if you are faithful to the commands of Scripture, you will face economic adversity, or most of us will. Right? Even in, even in your giving, you know it. Right? As you, as you faithfully give to the church, to missions, you are saying no to things that you could enjoy. You're learning contentment. And I think that that's why Paul talks about the extremes there. It's going to be hard to learn contentment. Are you willing to learn contentment? I'm not saying you, you need to go out and intentionally you know, make, life, make life hard for yourself. But don't avoid life being hard because you don't want to be content. We need to move along here to the source of contentment in verse 13. And so here, we know that Paul wasn't saying, na-na-na-na-na, I figured it out, and you can unless you go through some ritual. He describes to them what the source of contentment is. I can do all things, in verse 13, through, Christ, through him who strengthens me. Now, some versions have Christ and, 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 and some manuscripts do. It's not in the best original ones. The New American Standard shows that. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can. He says, I have the ability. I have the power. I am able to do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul has a confidence. He has a certainty here. All things is often tragically misapplied, right? Paul doesn't say, I can accomplish feats of strength because of Christ. The context clarifies the all. It's talking about contentment. And I think that you could apply it, because we know that this is true, to all other kinds of obedience. But here he's talking about contentment. I can be content through Christ who strengthens me. 
Contentment is not just a matter of mental discipline, of kind of stealing yourself off of emotions, of, of pretending you don't have hunger or physical desires. It's not having the tenacity to keep a resolution. It's not an inner fortitude that Paul possessed but that others are lacking. It's not some kind of special blessing that Paul had, some, some, some epiphany that he went through that finally he was zapped with contentment and he, hey, I learned it, guys. Now, now, now you can have it too. You just need to have this great experience. It's through him. It is in Christ that he can do all things. It is in Christ that we can be content. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Through him, in vital union with Christ. John 15, 5, it says, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. In 15, verse 7 of John, it says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. The believer has access to the resources of Christ. Those who are in Christ Jesus have the ability to be content. We are in him. Paul speaks often about the strengthening that Jesus Christ does. And I'm not going to explain all these verses in context. I'm just going to rattle them off here because I think it shows this is a big theme for John, I mean, for Paul. Ephesians 6.10 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. 1 Timothy 1.12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me. 2 Timothy 2.1, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 4.17, But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. There is strength for you in your connection with Jesus Christ through faith. If he is your savior, if you've been reconciled to him through faith, you have the ability to be content in the circumstances that you are facing this day. So how do we utilize this strength from the Lord? It's great to know that it's there, but, but, but do, do we have to turn it on? Is, 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 is there a switch that we can flow? Yeah, okay. A switch we can turn on? How do we utilize this strength from the Lord? Well, John 15, 7 talks about his word abiding in us. Say that that's an essential part. It also talks about us asking whatever we wish, bring our requests to him. We need to be dependent upon his strength. We need to depend upon his strength. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. How, what, what, what does that dependence look like? How can we utilize the, 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 these, this infinite resource in Jesus Christ? Independence is an I can attitude that draws upon internal resources. But dependence is an I can attitude that draws upon Christ's resources. Dependence is a theological conviction that you can't apart from Jesus Christ. That you know that you can't obey him. You know you can't be content. You know you can't please him without his help. That you are insufficient. That you can never have the contentment with which that, that, that would be pleasing him apart from him. It's a theological conviction. Independence is expressed through prayer. It's expressed through prayer. If you are depending upon Christ's resources, if you want the strength that is in Christ Jesus, you will be asking him. You'll be saying, Lord, please help me to be content. Help me to be content in the traffic on, on, on the way home. Help me to be content in the home that I live in now. Help me to be content in this physical difficulty. Help me, Lord, to be content. I'm willing. I'm submissive. You're good to me. You're gracious to me. And then it's thanking him afterwards. Say, thank you, Lord, for helping me to be content. Dependence follows our submission to him. We can't depend upon him while rebelling against him. You can't depend upon him by shaking your fists at the circumstances he has sovereignly decreed in your life. You can't rely upon him while resisting his will. You're going to need to submit to him. And this is what's so neat, how submission and faith in scripture always go together. We believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our submission is inseparable from our faith. You must believe that the Lord is good if you're going to willingly submit to him. You must believe that the Lord is good if you're going to willingly submit to him. And unless you submit to him, you're not going to be depending upon him. And without depending upon him, you can't utilize the resources that are yours in Christ Jesus. It's going to be your dependence upon him through the strength he gets. And even that dependence, where does it come from? Christ Jesus. 
Are you submitted that a good Lord is reigning over your day, including all of your adversity? The Lord will lead you into difficult circumstances so that you will glorify him by relying on his resources, that you will be energized by his strength. Humbling and hunger were the context in which Paul flexed the muscles of Christ. He wouldn't have had an opportunity to show how strong Christ was if he didn't have an ache in his belly. So what aches are you going through? That is the context for you to show the strength of Christ. Adversity is not about our greatness being revealed. It is about Christ's greatness being revealed. And that is why the Lord has decreed adversity in your life. Today, the challenges to your contentment are God's opportunities for you to glorify His Son as you rely upon His strength. True contentment is not self-sufficient, but son-sufficient. Let's pray. Father, we uh, live in such a, a blessed country. And uh, I don't know the situation of everyone here. I know so many of us have so many physical blessings. And Father, we uh, confess that we uh, need to learn contentment. Lord, I confess that really we, uh, many of us often, even today, aren't going through the kind of, of hunger, the kind of poverty that uh, Paul experienced. But I know that we are going through other kinds of adversity, some of us physical, some of us emotional, relational, some of us opposed for the gospel, some of us struggling in relationship with our brothers and sisters in Christ, some of us having financial circumstances. Lord, we know and we confess that you are a good and sovereign Lord. We think about the gospel. We thank you so much for the good news of Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Lord, that that is a lens that we can see all of our circumstances through. Lord, your, your, your desire is to refine us, not to crush us. We thank you, Father, that you crushed your son in our place so that we could learn contentment, so that we could show the sufficiency of Christ, so that we could draw upon his resources. Now, Lord, I do pray, Father, that you would be giving us wisdom, how in our lives uh, we're perhaps shying away from adversity. Maybe it's in gospel conversations. Maybe it's in using our gifts and generosity and making hard choices about, about where we live or what kind of jobs we have uh, because we have really just are, are pursuing comfort so wholeheartedly. I pray, Father, that you would be putting us in circumstances that we would learn contentment, that you would help us not to be afraid of adversity, whether here or whether you would bring us overseas, Lord, that we would be so willingly to be used by you, Lord, that uh, we would be able to show the greatness of Christ Jesus as we draw upon his strength to do what we can't in our own. Uh, Father, just w w w what a hope-filled passage, and we thank you for uh, our union with Christ, and we pray that we bring glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen.